The following presentation was recorded at a Christian Light Education workshop. More information at clp.org. Good evening and greetings in the name of Jesus. It is indeed a blessing, a privilege to, to be here today. We have enjoyed the fellowship. We have enjoyed the time together. And now we'd like to come to this closing session of having an Anabaptist worldview in our education. Last fall, when we as a committee looked at planning the workshops for this fall, and as we were discussing this theme and what do we do about the evening, the suggestion was made to talk about historic decisions, decisions that have been made in history based on, on an Anabaptist worldview that the people had. And uh, somebody suggested, well, we need to hear from what the Dutch, Prussian, Russian Mennonites did. And then, of course, I'm the only one of that kind of a background on that committee. And so then they just more or less said, Brother Pete, it's, in your hands. Well, and so this evening I plan to, Lord willing, talk about some of the some of the decisions and some of the things that our people decided to do. And I don't do this to lift up a certain group of people to somehow make them more special than the others. But as we look at History, there is so much we can tell that it's best that we try to narrow things down to uh, what we can do in a comfortable amount of time. And it's not to say that people with other backgrounds don't also have stories that show how they made decisions and why they made them the way they did. I'd like to, however, before I begin, uh, look at a passage of Scripture that we find in Psalm 78. This is a psalm of of Asaph. And uh, sometimes as I read through the Scriptures, I wonder, you know, I've been been doing some reading in different parts of the Scriptures, and, and we find the same stories told again and again. We find the children of Israel, their story in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And then Moses goes before his death and pretty well repeats the whole story in Deuteronomy again. And then we have Joshua and Judges and Ruth and then First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And Chronicles repeats a lot of what's in Kings. And there's other times, like even in, in the Psalms and then later in, in the Prophets and even in the New Testament, we have like um, Stephen telling a lot of Israel's history again just before his death. You think, these peace, people must be history freaks. They must just love history. Well, I guess some of them did. And it's sad that there aren't more people that enjoy history because if you don't know your path, if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't even know where you're going. But it wasn't a matter of a love for history. It wasn't just a matter of telling people, this is us. No, but these people were telling, they were reminding one another, this is what God has done. This is who God is. This is how God works. This is why God did the things that he did. And that's why these, these stories get told. And I believe that that is, that is important that we as God's people continue to tell the stories of God, of how God has worked. Not for our glory, but for his and in Psalm 78, we, I'm going to read just a few of the verses, beginning at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and made known. And our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. 
showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generations to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should rise, arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And here this psalmist says, the story of God, the story of God's working among those people needs to be told. And the way I've calculated, it's, be, it's, either five, it's about five generations of people that are listed that, are, that, be, that should be knowing the work of God. And so these things need to be told again and again. This evening we'd like to look at anabaptism. That is history, a little bit of our people. There are several branches of Anabaptists and their history. There is the branch that started out in Switzerland, and we call it the Swiss South German branch of Anabaptists, and that includes a lot of the Swiss Mennonite and the Amish people. And uh, they went through a lot of severe persecution in Europe, and many of them eventually being able to, to somehow come to Holland, and then from Holland come to America in the 1600s, and the 1700s, and the 1800s. We call that the Swiss branch. They're, they have a story all their own. The Brethren people, what we call the Church of the Brethren, are, a, are another Anabaptist group that began at Schwarzenau in Germany and, and also too, uh, and too, after a lot of difficulties in Europe, were able to move to America. And we have uh, various brethren groups there. We have the Hutterian brethren, which began in the Austrian Tyrol area and in the, uh, some of the northern valleys of of Italy, and probably the group that suffered the severest of persecutions. It's also the group that has a distinction among the Anabaptists of having probably the most detailed recorded history in the what they call the Großgeschichtbuch, as well as the Kleingeschichtbuch. And eventually these people because of persecution and needing to move from one place to another, migrating to such areas as Transylvania and Wallachia and so on, ending up in Russia, and then in the 1870s migrating to the Americas and after, to the United States and after World War I, come, many of them coming to Canada as well. But as I said, I'd like to focus on the Dutch Prussian Mennonite people which began in Holland also in the 1500s and there's all kinds of names that we could attach to them but there's names like Menno Simons who was one of the early leaders of, of this group and Dirk Phillips and Obi Phillips and men like that and also in Holland there was a lot of persecution and many who died for their faith. And many of these stories are recorded in, like Martyr's Mirror. And many of the Dutch North German Mennonites being able to flee from Holland and North Germany to Prussia, which is now on the Baltic Sea, just at Poland. And they were able to flee there, and they were actually welcomed there by these German landowners because the area there was swampland. And the Dutch people were known for converting swampland, draining the swamps and making it into very prosperous, profitable farmland. And so these, the German landowners tolerated these strange Anabaptist people and allowed them to come in because of, because of their skills. And many Dutch people moved there. In the earliest years, the services were conducted in the Dutch language. 
singing and the scriptures and so on was used, the Dutch language was used. Eventually changing to German. And our people lived in Prussia for several hundred years. And they had a difficult time there because they were restricted as to how much land they could have and and they were restricted in their religious activities and so on. Things Things were not easy in Prussia for our people. Eventually, in the 1790s, Tsarina Catherine the Great of Russia, through war, had acquired a large piece of land in what is now known as the Ukraine. And she wanted this land settled so that there wouldn't just be empty land and the Turkish people from whom she had acquired it, that they would settle that land again. And so she invited all kinds of German settlers from all over Europe to move to this very fertile prairie land. Catholics, Lutherans, Jews, and also then the Mennonite people of Prussia. And so we have the Mennonite people of Prussia first sending delegates there, Bartsch and Hepner, to go, and they spent about a year looking at this land, and eventually coming back with a paper that we know as the Privilegium, a privilege paper that gave guarantees to our people to settle this land. And beginning in 1789, we have the migration, first of those people that settled at Kortitsa colony, and then in the early 1800s, those that settled at the Malachna colony, and forming two large communities of Prussian Mennonites in the Ukraine. They were allowed to settle, to form village communities and to pretty well have self-government. They were allowed to have their own schools in their own language. They were permitted the freedom from all military duty. They They had the privilege of living their faith but they were not supposed to evangelize among the Russian people. They could among the Turks, but not among the Russians. And I know that some people have always held that against our people, and that is not a good concession. I will, however, state I think I understand a bit of the reason why. Not that that justifies it. We must remember that Russia wasn't only a nation as politically, but Russia had a state church, which is the Russian Orthodox Church. And the Russian people were part of the Orthodox Church as Russian citizens. And for another group to come and evangelize and and, and teach these people against the Orthodox Church to something else was actually working against the government under which they lived. I'm not saying that that justifies them making those concessions, but those are some of the reasons that are behind that they agreed to this. And so our people moved there. And they lived there from 1789. In fact, some of our people are still there. Not in that area anymore, but there are still Mennonite families, some, in Russia today. And our people lived there till about the 1870s, when Tsar... The Tsar Paul said it's time that these people who have lived here about 80 or 90 years that they become Russians and not just be foreigners in this country. That they speak the Russian language and so he wasn't going to enforce Russian in the schools. And he says they have to help, be, they have to help our country and if they don't want to be sending soldiers at least they have to help with some of the alternate ways like working in the forestry and also helping with the wounded in the war. And quite about a third of our Anabaptist people, of our Mennonite people, said that violates the privileges that we were given. Two-thirds of them more or less said, times are going well and they're getting better. I think we can make the adjustment. 
So two-thirds of them stayed and for quite a few years enjoyed what was the golden era of Anabaptism in the Ukraine. And one-third of the Mennonite population, including the Hutterite people, in the 1873, 1874, through 1876, and so on, moved from Russia to Canada and the United States. Those that stayed behind thought that those that left were making a foolish move. And those that came thought they had made a hard move, and they had. And so our people lived here, and two-thirds lived in Russia. Up till the end of the First World War, in 1914 through 1918, and after that you have the Bolshevik Revolution, which became a very difficult time for Mennonites, for the Anabaptist people in Russia, because they were Germans, they were considered foreigners, they were considered kulaks, that meant that they were rich people. And so the peasant revolt in the Russian and the Bolshevik Revolution and then communism did some of the terrible things that our history records. And I'm not going to tell those stories today. There's a lot of those stories written. They're very sad. In fact, I have two books on the vehicle outside here in German. It's called Mennonitische Martyre, Mennonite Martyrs, book one and book two. They really need to be translated into English, which tells the story of many people and the difficulties that they went through at that time. Quite a few of those people were able to become refugees and escape and came either to Canada or to Paraguay, but through great difficulties. Communism was started, and after that, things went till the Second World War. And again, the Mennonite people as Germans, and Germany was against everybody, and so that became a very difficult time for our people again. Again, many became refugees, and there were those that were able to come to Canada, many of them moving to Paraguay, Brazil, Uruguay, being able to settle there as refugees again. Those were the second and the third migrations. There were still those that stayed in Russia or that could not leave. Many of them became part of the underground church. Many of them became part of the either the registered or the unregistered Baptist churches in the Soviet Union and went through a lot of difficult times until the fall of communism, when many of them were able to move to Europe, to Germany, and some to have come to Canada. That's part of our story. I'd like to tell some of the other parts of the story as well, just use them as examples. But I'd like to not just tell our history. I'd like to look at some specific decisions that were our people made. And I'd like to share with you why I think they made them. Because of how they thought, according to the Bible. And the first area I'd like to look at is decisions that were made by our people regarding what we, what we say, regarding being non-resistant. Verlose. That our people did not participate in government or in military action. The Swiss Anabaptist people already went through a lot of that in Europe and even when they came to America. Because in the 1700s there was the War of Independence. America was really a British colony. And then there was a rebellion of the 13 colonies of that area against the King of England. And uh, the establishment then of what we know today as the United States of America. And our Anabaptist people were already living in those colonies at that time. And many of them 
where the difficulty. Now, which government do we support? Do we support the government of the king in England, who really wasn't working in the best interests of the people in America? Or do we support the rebel government that's fighting the king of England, which is the government? became very difficult. They did not get involved in the, in the military so much, but which is the government you pray for? Which is the government that you support? Which is the government to which you pay your taxes? became a very difficult time. And many of our people in the, those 13 colony area moved to Ontario at that time. Amish, Brethren, Mennonite people. Now, in our Canadian history books, they're known as loyalists. <laughs> That's really, uh, you know, because supposedly they were loyal to the king. I said, no, they were loyal to the king of kings. That's why they made the choice that they did. Of course, they then had the difficulty, too, was how about the Civil War? The war against slavery. And there was the establishment later on of conscientious objectors in the CPS camps and alternate forms of service for young men of military age. Our Hutterite people lived in the United States, but in World War I also went through the difficulty of their young men being drafted and because they refused to accept military service, many of them spent time in prison and two young men actually died in prison in, in Leavenworth, Kansas because of refusing to take on the sword, the military uniform. And with that, after World War I, you have a lot of Hutterian brethren moving to Canada. Eventually, some of them moving back to the United States when things eased up. But that's, that is the reason why we have a lot of Hutterian communities here in the Prairie Provinces today. And then the Russian Mennonite, what we know as the Russian, the Dutch, Rus Prussian, Russian Mennonite people, moved from Russia to Canada in the 1870s. As I already said, it's because Tsar Paul was um, uh, requiring an alternate service And a third of the Mennonite population says this violates the promises that the government made. The government cannot be trusted. And that's why then our, our, so many of our people moved to the prairie provinces and to the prairie of Canada and the prairies of the United States. I'd like to read from, just from some documents that come from that time. Here's a document that the Kleinigemeinde Church in Russia already declared in regarding the fact that they did not want to participate in voting on the Gebietsamt, the district government offices, which were part of the Russian government. Now, I'm not going to read the entire thing. It would take a, these, these documents would take a long time. It says... We hereby give our declaration. We wish to render unto the Tsar all due honor and to submit ourselves to all human authorities, including that of the district government, as far as matters as roads, dams, bridges, boundaries, tax levies, duties, and dues are concerned. As far as we can, it will dispose ourselves to the required election. However, in as far as it does affect our conscience in conflict with our confession of faith, which we have made on our knees before God, in this, we're obligated to give our undivided loyalty to God, and consequently, we can only serve in our office among our own Mennonite brotherhood, and only with respect to the above matters. We cannot serve an office where any individual, as a judge, would be especially obligated to make decisions involving the use of force, arrest, or other similar decisions through which our non-resistance would be compromised. He says, we will not be involved at a level like that and they made that declaration 
at that time. However, things did continue to be, become more difficult for the Mennonite people. And the Kleininger-minded church sent a petition to the Tsar saying this, we pray that in the future we will be permitted to live at our beliefs undisturbed in this country, which has become our beloved fatherland as also our forefathers have already done for over half a century. They came under the protection of your majesty's most esteemed predecessors. Just as we have had the blessing of living under the scepter of your majesty's most gracious government. They talk about the thanks. They give thanks for the government's protection. It says, however, we are now being attacked by the new law that the czar, Paul, was going to enforce. And so they pray for grace. For grace to have consideration for a conscience of a small, non-resistant flock which every single member has solemnly promised his God and Savior to dedicate every limb as a member, as a weapon of righteousness. Not only are we not to brandish the sword, but also the tongue. As part of our body, we will not take part in any expression of judgment or punishment. We are not to bring before the authorities whom we are to honor, fear, and obey any charge or legal process. However, should we do these things, From that moment on, we would no longer be called Mennonites, and as those who have broken a holy covenant would rightly be deserving if the favor and contempt of Her Majesty would fall on them. It is for us a priceless holy conviction to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus and in the faith of our fathers founded on the word of God. Then they say, We hope that it is not the wish of Your Majesty to want to overrule the conscience of a small, non-resistant, but loyal Submitted Gemeinde. God and the Tsar are still on the throne. Notwithstanding our deepest concerns, this thought gives us heart with such a trust in God. We put ourselves at the mercy of the fatherly heart of your majesty, to whom we constantly bring before God in our prayers and our gatherings. And they pray that they would be able to be spared from what the Tsar wanted them to be doing. But things did not go well. And finally, our Mennonite people, a third of them decided to move to Canada and to the United States. And there's an interesting story. Some of you may have read the story about Eltister, the Bishop Gerhard Wiebe, who was Eltister of the Berktal group, Later, later known as the Gortitzer Group, the Sommerfelder Group would have that same background. Some of the people had already left for Canada. When he was called before a representative of the Tsar who had the authority of the Tsar himself, and he was supposed to answer to the Tsar because he was being accused as being the ringleader in this whole migration thing. And so he appears before the Tsar, or his, his, this leader, and he says, you have permission to ask something for your church. This is what he's told. Do you understand? I beg your majesty's pardon, I don't understand. So he was told the second time, you still have freedom to ask something for your church, and you must now decide what that will be. After a pause, he asked whether I now understood I answered, pardon me, your majesty, I don't know what this is all about. Please give me a little light on the matter. No, he said. And Elgister Weeb felt he was being pushed into a corner about the matter. But as he prayed, he sensed that God was going to give him direction. He was asked a third time. He says, things became clear to me. Do you understand? He says, yes, your majesty, I do. But may I ask for our church something which is outside the law? And he is asked, do you know the law? As far as, it contains, as far as it concerns our religion, yes, I do. He says, you have to be guided by that. And Elder Weeb says, well, I cannot ask something for the church that the church has not given me the right to ask for. And he's told, you go home, you, get, you have a Bruderschaft, you have a, your brother's meeting, And tomorrow, 10 o'clock, you bring me 
your decision. So he goes home, and they have a meeting, and somehow he has to try to explain to the brethren there what he's supposed to do, and they really cannot give him an answer as to what to do. And finally, the bishop says, I have to ask within the law, and if I ask within the law, it'll be a trap. And so the, the brotherhood unanimously make the decision, ask only that we may leave. So the next day he needs to go back. And the driver that takes him there tells him, I feel sorry for you because everything has been planned to crush you. And he is led into a room and there's a big display of, of the czar's authority and that's shown to him. And then he needs to appear before the czar's representative. And he is asked, did you explain things to your group? Yes, I did. And what did they say? He says, the church requests that we emigrate, that we move. I was asked this three times, and the third time I said, pardon me, your majesty, but God in heaven is my witness that I presented it this way to the church. And this representative more or less accepts his decision. But then Elder Weeb says that it was as if Satan then pushed me personally into a corner. He says the church was free to move, but I was now offered something. The czar's representative says, you have permission to ask something for yourself and for your children. Whatsoever you ask will be given. And he says, he felt as if he was, almost like Jesus, I was taken up on a high mountain and offered the world. And he says, I could have asked for military freedom for my family. I could have asked for a lot of land. And this temptation was brought to me. When suddenly the Lord's hand grasped me because I needed to say something. Especially after this, uh, this gentleman tells, and surely you will not reject the offer of the czar. And so, Gerhard Weeb says, may I have the privilege of asking your majesty a question? He says, yes. He says, for example, a large landowner has a large herd of sheep. He wants to travel for a long time. He lets his chief shepherd know that he wants to travel. And he says, I will put the herd in your charge. Here are the guidelines. I want you to make sure that this herd of sheep is well taken care of, that there's no disease in the flock. And so he leaves. The chief shepherd decides, well, since the owner left, I'm going to go on a trip myself. And he puts the charge, the responsibility of taking care of the sheep to assistance, and he goes on a journey too. The sheep's lives are endangered. Suddenly the landowner returns and the chief shepherd is not with a flock. What is the landowner going to say to the chief shepherd when the chief shepherd returns? And his majesty said he will certainly punish him. And Gerhard Weeb says, And what do you think the king of all kings will say to me on that judgment day if I as a chief shepherd desert my flock? You may emigrate. And so these people had the privilege of leaving. The Kleinigemeinde church, before they left Russia, sent a letter of thanksgiving and petition to the Tsar. They're filled with thanksgiving, but he says, We we find ourselves compelled to take the pilgrim staff. It's our only way agreeable with our conscience. And then, of course, they ask for permission to migrate, to leave, that their emigration passes and passports would be, that they could receive them quickly. But they say this as a last statement. We are not leaving with ingratitude, but rather we take leave of Russia with heart-rending tears and thankfulness, so that even our distant generations will remain faithful will remain filled with feelings of thankfulness for Russia to continue to pray to the King of Kings for the Tsar that the ruler of destiny will keep him worthy to be a ruler of a land and a people whose borders are peaceful.
We also pray that the monarch, the Tsar himself, will finally come to the higher freedom which is prepared for us through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable statement. And so our people leave. It seems that the those that were particularly concerned about having freedom from the military and a retaining of their way of life chose Canada. And the rest chose some of the American prairie states. After our people had been living here a while, the Governor General, which is the Queen's representative, came to Steinbach, Manitoba, one of the villages there close by. And he was welcomed there as a guest. And the Oberschultz, the civic leader of the group of people there, was requested to have a speech. And there's just one comment, one statement he makes. He says, We are contented and willing to obey the laws of the land, but we cannot reconcile our religious belief with the performance of military duty. That was a very, very important statement. A very, very important thought for them. My grandfather tells the story of his grandfather, so of my great-great-grandfather. In those earlier years of living in the Steinbeck in the East Reserve area, and the very difficult time that they had, there was droughts, there was grasshoppers, and them harvesting potatoes, and there was just so few potatoes that they could harvest. And then my great-great-grandfather sitting on the steps and weeping, And his wife, my great-great-grandmother, asking, what's the problem? And he says, we should maybe have stayed in Russia. How will we feed our family? And my great-great-grandmother says, but yes, you know why we left. Yes, so that our boys would not have to go into the military. And she then says, then God will find a way. God will make a way. We left for the right reason. God will make a way. Of course, our people then went through the World War I and the World War II experience. Especially in World War I, there was the threat of young men that had not been baptized being drafted into the army. And how the elders of our Manitoba churches then replied to the government and said, our churches, our Gemeinschaft, has always considered its children and young people its own as much as the baptized members. And petitions for exemption from military service have always intended to include those bap- young people of military age, whether they've been baptized or not. Any assurances which provided for less than this would have never persuaded us to accept the invitation of the Canadian government to settle in this country. We could go on and on and tell these stories. However, a lot of our people then did move to Latin America. And the whole military freedom thing was one of the issues. I would like to look at the issue especially next regarding Christian education. It seems wherever the Mennonite people from Russia on have moved they have always requested a privilegium, a letter of guarantee, which would include the assurance that they could be free from military, that they could have their own schools and their own languages, and so on. And as we look at, our, at the history in Russia, changes were all ha- already happening in Russia. Many of, our, many of you probably know the rather simple form of education that was, was, was started in the Russian uh, colonies. And some of those things were already being changed in Russia, especially by a man by the name of Johann Kornis. And there was a push on, push that they should take the Bibles out of the school because children might just tear the pages and put in other more attractive readers. 
And the conservative element decided against that. Because first of all, our children needed to read, and we would also say understand the word of God. And Gerhard Weeb in his book does tell about some of these instances that happened at that time. But because those assurances were not met and the children were to learn the Russian language in school, that wasn't so much the problem. But the problem was that they would become Russian national citizens. That was the problem. And so they moved to Canada. And the same thing happened here in Canada, especially around World War I. The English language seemingly was not so much the problem. Our people were willing to do that. But that our children should be sent to public education. And in 1916, the Manitoba government under the Premier Norris had a campaign which said the school system is to be changed in which there is a spirit of nationalism, love for king, flag, and navy. This should be more thoroughly taught. Quite a few men were jailed in both Manitoba and Saskatchewan for refusing to send their children to these government schools. And so because of that, we have, in the 1920s, the old colony (coughs) church pretty well entirely leaving Canada and moving to Mexico. A small portion of Sommerfeld people moving to Mexico and a large group of Sommerfeld Gortitzer people moving to the Chaco of Paraguay. I'm not here to say that everything that's happened since then has always been good. But there were reasons why these people made these decisions, why they did what they did. And it was that their children would be taught the truth. Bishop Gerhard Weeb says this, We were only in Canada for a few years when money was offered to us for the support of our schools. This, however, seemed hazardous to us, for we feared we would lose our schools' freedom, which had been promised to us by the government. But Hespeler, the delegate of the government, said there's no danger, so we agreed to accept it. We went to him with the entire list of our school teachers, and Hespeler told us to divide our school teachers into three classes. We asked why. Well, he said, don't think that the government is going to give money to men who are cowherds in summer and teachers in winter. Then the author gathered his papers together and said, Mr. Hespler, we understand. We will keep the arrangements that our deputies made with us. But things did not work out well. And so, many of our people again took the pilgrim staff and moved. And this is the farewell letter that the old colony church, at that time known as the Rhineland Church, that they sent to the government. We Mennonites of the Rhineland Mennonite Church, or so-called old colony, who have emigrated into Canada, feel obligated to express our thanks to the Dominion government, as well as to provincial government, for the truly benevolent protection and assistance we have received. And so they offer thanks for that. And they, they said, we have prayed for the government every Sunday in our congregations. We have learned that the possibility exists that a revision of the Provincial School Act will be presented to the Legislative House. This provision has the intention of revoking the privileges of having our own independent schools, which the Mennonites have enjoyed since our migration. It has been our tradition in the old home, Russia, that our children should re- learn reading writing, arithmetic, religion, industry, and cleanliness in such a way as to meet the requirements of the way of life to which we belonged. But since these were not followed, they decided to move. There is a letter on file that the Gortitzer Church of the Steinbach area gave to the government before leaving for Paraguay. And this is part, this is something that, that the bishop 
and the ministry that left say. And I'm just, there's just a small part. He says, we are leaving because we believe that no Christian church can endure without the teaching of God's word in our schools. We believe that that such instruction must not be reduced to a minimum, but must receive primary emphasis, for the Lord said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It is hoped that all defenders of the faith in Jesus Christ and his word, be it in government or among the people, will, through our move, be encouraged to recognize that the Bible is the most effective and best weapon against atheism, and that each one will become more and more the subject of instruction in all schools of the land. It is hoped that the government will resolve to regard Christian schools with greater toleration and thereby promote Christianity and its blessings throughout the world. With fond memories of many years of peace, we the undersigned, in the name of a departing church, sign our names in a spirit of abiding love and gratitude. And so they moved. I'd like to share just one other area. And that is historic decisions made based on being a people of brotherhood. We live in a time in which a lot of people have very much an independent way of thinking. Church is basically a place where you go and worship on Sunday morning and you meet people. Basically, the rest of your life, the way you live, is a very personal, independent matter. And that is really not a concept that is scriptural. That is foreign to scripture. It is interesting how even from earlier times, the Anabaptist people have been a people that were united as a brotherhood. They did things as a group, as we have already seen here. There's many things that we could share. I'd like to look basically at how our churches in earlier times did, did considered one and the, the, that we look after each other and be concerned about each other. I understand that some of our earlier church houses had rather strong ceilings because there was a loft above the ceiling where every fall after harvest was in That's where the grain and the lard and the meat was stored by the deacon for those that would not have in for those of the church that would need help. The Weisenamt, the widow's orphans fund, was a way of making sure that the misfortunate among us, the orphans, the widows, would be taken care of as best as possible. And when our people did come to Canada and then went through a lot of difficult times those early years because of drought and grasshoppers and so, it was our Anabaptist brethren of Ontario that I believe more than once sent money either as a gift or on a, on a loan so that our, that our people could be helped out during a very difficult time. MCC, which is not necessarily a program that we would endorse and participate, but was began in the 1920s because of a brotherhood in Russia that was suffering. If we read the story of the Berktaler Mennonites leaving Russia in the 1870s, I understand that every family had the, had the opportunity to move to Canada. It was not based on whether they could afford it. The church saw to it that every family that wanted to move had the opportunity. And so we could tell many, many stories we could tell of many decisions that, that, are, that these people have made. Some have been very simple decisions. Some have been decisions that we would consider, oh, those are just cultural and they've just been passed on. 
as just the way things were done. But many of these decisions have become a way of life. Many of these decisions have been ingrained in our people, not so much as a tradition. But if we look, if we look past, there's a reason why it was done. The problem is so often we forget the reason and then we don't appreciate what it's all about. I will tell just one thing that I found rather interesting and it, and it has really no spiritual significance. Why that decision has been made that way, I don't know. Several in, in 2008, I had the privilege of taking a group of young people to Europe on a Mennonite history tour, which was a very, very special time for me. And we were in Holland. And we saw the church where Menno Simons had been a Catholic priest. We, saw, we didn't go inside, but we were outside. And in that same area, we also saw a small Mennonite church that during, during the difficult times of the 15 and 1600s, the outside looked like a house and the first rooms of the building just looked like a regular house and then behind it there was a church building. That's the only way that they could have church. And I walked into this little church house. It was small. And I says, this looks like home. And my student says, Pete, what's this about? He says, what do you see that looks like home here? I says, the color. He says, what's so special about the color? He says, you know, that gray, blue color of the pulpit, same color of the church that I was when I was a boy. And I can take you to quite a few of our churches, especially in Latin America. It's the same color. I don't know why, but somehow it's kept up. It probably doesn't have any spiritual significance, but that's what's done. I want to close. I'd like to tell you about a group of people that have become very special to me. In recent years, I've become acquainted with a group of, of Russian Pentecostal believers who live northwest of Fort St. John, British Columbia. They have lived there for 20 years or so now. These people come from various areas of Russia and went through tremendous difficult times of persecution under communism. In fact, there is a book, and it's difficult to get. I've been able to get a few copies. It's called Siberian Miracle, that tells the story of these people. It's very interesting. The suffering that they went through, yet the courage they had under these very difficult times to actually even teach their children at home because they did not want their children raised as atheistic people in the Soviet Union. And other things, they went through a lot of very hard, hard times. And they live a communal lifestyle where they share their, their goods, they share their income. And after communism fell many of these people were able to move to Germany because they had many of them had a German background originally. And they could settle as a group there. And they, they did very well there. Except they had one area of, of problem and that was regarding schools in Germany. Germany has very strict laws regarding education. Christian schools are very difficult to have that are not basically public school. And homeschooling is pretty well forbidden in Germany. And if children and young people did not participate in, in the things in school, then the parents were often fined by law. This made things very difficult for these 
for these Russian believers. And I know we have many that have moved to this area of Manitoba as well. There's a variety of these people. But these, this group of believers that live up in the northern part of British Columbia appealed to the government if there wouldn't be consideration made about at least being considerate of their convictions. And finally, I understand the authorities told them, we may not make Russian citizens out of you, but we will out of your children. And this group of people who had been welcomed into Germany, had become, had done well in Germany, decided our faith does not permit that. And they moved to northern Canada. And they live there now. I would unnecessarily agree with all the things that they do. With all of their beliefs the way they have them. But they are a fine group of dedicated Anabaptist people. I would have enjoyed being with them Sunday a week ago. The first Sunday of October. I was with them recently. Visit, uh, was visiting them regarding schools. They told me the first Sunday of October. They have what they call a dunk fest. A thanks fest. Every year. And there are some very large communities already. They all get together at the same place. At one location. And have a large church service. Of course, good Russian food. And then some long, long services throughout the afternoon and even rather late into the evening. And what they do is they have their people who, in, who went through these difficulties in Russia, who went through the ways of seeing God work miracles in their lives under those difficulties, come and tell their stories again again. They do not want their people, their older people, their young people, their children, to forget who they are and why they are who they are. I wonder sometimes if we would put more effort into that, if we wouldn't have a lot more of our people appreciating. We're not here to lift up and to make big names for ourselves and, and, and to make gods out of us or out of our systems, no. But God has done a big work among our people. Our history has things to tell us that are significant. Our people may not always have been very smart, but many of them were very wise. Not all the decisions that were made were good. And not all the decisions that were made based on these decisions were good. I'll admit that. We all do. But we have a goodly heritage. God has been good. Not only to the Russian Mennonite people, but to all our groups. To all our groups. And we must remember that we do make decisions based on how we view the world. We do. And should the world stand in 100 years or 150 years, I wonder what people will say about the decisions we made. I wonder what kind of judgment they will pass on our Anabaptist worldview. Or lack of it. These are just questions for us to look at. And so I hope that this evening we have not glorified who we are, but that we can be thankful to God who has led us to where we are because of the decisions of people who had the worldview that they had. And I hope that we can be faithful to a worldview that is biblical, that is true, 
and that will take us to the right place. May God help us to that. Thank you. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.